We're going to start with Dr. David Clifford, who's from Washington University in St. Louis, and then proceed with Victor Valcor, who is from San Francisco, UCSF. And then we'll have a question and answer uh, series after that. So without further ado, let me bring Dr. Clifford up here. Well, thank you so much. Um, it's a real honor to get to speak to this audience. I really admire and honor uh, the work that you do. It is really so, so important to uh, many people in this country. And um, for all the rest of us that sit in ivory towers, thank you so much for taking such good care of HIV patients. I have a biased point of view, but the brain is the most interesting and important part of the body. And um, so I have had that as my highest uh, priority in thinking about HIV therapy. And I want to share with you sort of the perspective that we have in 2011. Um, and I'm going to set the stage for the discussion and, and actually uh, my colleague, Dr. Valcor, is going to help you to start to pick up practical tools that you can take back to your clinic to help your patients and also help us to make progress in this area. Um, and we're going to have workshops that will be even more hands-on, both for the brain problem and for the neuropathy part later in the afternoon. So I'll look forward to getting to see a few of you at that. Um, just to tell you what I'm driving at here, um, I, w I do want you to know what the full-blown brain problem is with HIV. And so we'll talk about dementia. Uh, but there's a milder form of this that we now call HAND for HIV-associated neurocognitive disorder. And we're going to talk about that mostly today because that's really where the problem is. Um, and we want you to see how big a problem it is and to start to think about how we can respond to it intelligently. So um, this disorder of HIV-associated neurocognitive disorders is um, divided up into three parts. And it has to do with how much it impacts on a person's life. So when we do testing and we look carefully at people, we know what to expect they can and can't do as a population. And when people fall below expectations, then we say they have an asymptomatic neurocognitive impairment if they're not complaining or their friends are not complaining. But we know they ought to do better. So that's ANI. A mild disorder is where they, patients, friends, colleagues who know them well, realize that things are not quite right, although uh, maybe not severely disabling at this point in time, and they also test poorly. And then the dementia is where it's really obvious to uh, the casual observer and is a severe problem. So I'm wondering how much you know about when this virus gets into the brain and could cause its damage. So on your response uh, markers, why don't you just tell me which would be the best response of when the infection of HIV enters the brain. All right. Okay, so we've gotten the message out. This is a lifelong problem. As soon as the virus really gets into the body, it enters the brain, and it's there uh, for practical purposes throughout the infection. That's great. Uh, you're well, well trained, and so maybe we can just skip my talk and get right on to Victor. No, uh, we'll. 
So, so um, you know, I just want to reemphasize to you the, the pattern that we're seeing uh, here, and that is that we have three disorders and normal function. So the purple on the left is normal function, pre and post heart. Uh, it's half of the population, more or less, that's functioning normally. But that's terrible because half are not functioning normally. And what we see is that the red and green uh, are increasing in proportion while the little yellow sliver of the bad old dementia complex is, as you know from taking care of patients, declining pretty radically. So um, what, was, what is the problem with AIDS dementia? Just to remind you what the worst of this disorder is like, cognitive impairment is obviously a big part of it. And the mind uh, is symptomatically involved when uh, it has to hold concepts and ideas together in sequence. And so concentration, the ability to focus and to recount things and keep them in order and sequenced is part of it, and people lose that ability and complain about it, and friends notice it. Clearly, calling up old thoughts or old things that you've learned is the second part of it, and, and we recognize that as a key part of dementia and of cognitive impairment. And in the process of communication and speech, language is a huge problem. Um, it turns out that for HIV-associated cognitive impairment, speech often does change usually not in the linguistic sense, but more in that it just slows down and the ability to carry forward communication verbally uh, gets much slower. So that was traditionally what we see, saw with that. Similarly, the whole motor behavior slowed down. So people walked slower and we could test them just with a stopwatch. They did things slower because the whole brain processing and uh, running programs was slower. And finally, behavior did change, although that was the most uh, subtle of these. Uh, often you'd think that there might be a mild psychiatric disorder. Maybe a little depression is going on here. And occasionally even psychotic kind of changes seem to be triggered by the infection in the brain. A less uh, characteristic part, but clearly seen with the full-blown AIDS dementia. To understand what was going on there, this was, this was a very characteristic disorder. And the reason we don't see it now is we don't have patients in the position where it occurred. It occurred when the CD4 counts were really quite low. Certainly, most of the time, less than 200, often much lower than that. It was a progressive disorder. So when people got this AIDS dementia, Without treatment, they were dead in six months. I didn't get a very big practice back in the old days because people didn't survive this problem. Um, it correlated with the virus in the brain in a fairly useful way. So it did seem that it was associated with viral replication. And so if you took samples from the spinal fluid or when the patient died, you looked for how much virus was in the brain there would be much more in the brains of people that had this disorder. And similarly, that virus was driving a very active immune process that resulted in elevated immune activation markers. So things like TNF-alpha, MCP-1, and so on were really elevated in the central compartment. And on pathology, as you see at the bottom of the slide, you can see actually multinucleated giant cells that were loaded with the virus that was growing and, and present in the brain. The uh, MR images up in the upper right-hand part of the slide show a marked atrophy. So the brain was just 
really devastated by active replicating infection. But that all changed when Heart came along and we got this wonderful set of drugs that really, as you heard this morning and talked by uh, Dr. Silicano, the viral replication is really shut down by Heart, probably completely. And the advent of this uh, has made um, dementia really rare in the clinics, thank goodness. So we really mostly see this complex when people fall through the cracks and they come in, they haven't been treated, they're advanced disease and their behavior or actually this problem brings them to light clinically. Um, and when we see that, if you initiate therapy promptly, um, these people do have a very notable clinical response that's, uh, that's often quite gratifying. It's hard to predict exactly how good that's going to be. Um, the persistent cases that we're still seeing in people on therapy usually are people who don't take the therapy successfully. And so they're the people that have complicated lives and really can't follow through with the heart that we have. So some of my colleagues, when they're going to the NIH, they say, AIDS dementia is alive and well. Well, that's, that's a funding line. But AIDS dementia is, thank goodness, not alive and well. It's really gone in people that have access to and take therapy. So is there a problem here? Just uh, to see if you were awake earlier, um, is the level of AIDS dementia in the 15% or less range, 30%, 45%, or as high as 60%? I'm wondering what you're thinking. We can run that one. Okay, so uh, I managed to, uh, to trick you in this one because I said neurocognitive impairment. And while AIDS dementia, which I got through, is really rare these days, um, in fact, neurocognitive impairment is not rare. And so um, let's just go on and look at how not rare it is. So this is a plot that comes from uh, the UC San Diego group and colleagues. And it shows on the left, the, the axis is the percent of HIV patients in clinic that are impaired at a, in a particular cohort. And if you look at, there are three bars in each of the uh, stages of HIV with HIV negative patients on the left uh, and then advanced patients on the far right. Uh, the yellow bars are from the pre-heart era when nothing was available to treat the patients. And the gray bars are the charter data, which is a current set of patients that we're studying for neurocognitive impairment. And what's startling is that through much of the epidemic and in most patients that we see, there's been very little percent decline in people that are neurocognitively compared, even compared to when we had no effective therapies at all. And it's startlingly close to 50% of the population, as that pie graph on the first uh, opening uh, showed. So, so in fact, we see this impairment in a lot of people, but it's almost entirely the modest, either asymptomatic disease is the biggest part of it, or mildly symptomatic uh, cognitive impairment. So I think it's really important to 
to switch gears and, and the public's got to switch gears, the funders and the scientists also have to switch gears. What we're dealing with uh, is not the same as the old AIDS dementia. It's a new thing where the structure of the brain is normal, where it can occur with normal CD4 counts. It can occur with people that have controlled viral load. But these people are functionally, and the picture on the right is a functional image where we're looking at changes of function of the brain with special techniques. The function of the brain is somehow still being impacted. And that's the big mystery that we're trying to get at. Now, is it worth it to pay attention to this? If people are asymptomatic, who cares? We've got real problems to deal with, right? Well, in, in some ways that could be true, but, but this asymptomatic impairment and mild impairment actually has an impact on what to expect down the line. So may impact on jobs, people will perform less well, safety, driving, it takes attention and concentration to drive a car safely and that's part of living successfully in the developed world that can be affected. And, and similarly compliance, uh, the remembering to remember that you got to do something is particularly impacted and that means people don't take care of themselves the way they should and that downstream can be expected to have a consequence. So uh, we think it is important to study and understand this and even more so because this may be the tip of the iceberg. We may be just seeing mild impairment, but is this giving us a warning of what's down the line in the next decade or two for the patients that we now uh, happily expect to live to quite uh, advanced ages? Is it something that's going to result in accelerated aging and, and a tragedy of, of long but unhappy and unproductive lives? And we want to head that off at the earliest moment. So let's dig back and say, okay, what's going on that causes mild, mild impairment? And for me, the, the obvious thing was, you know, it's not the virus at all, stupid. It's uh, all the other stuff that's in this population. Surely that's the cause of this. And we know that the population we deal with doesn't lead simple lives. Well, none of us do, but, but maybe our HIV population more than others has had excess exposure to trauma, including head trauma, fender benders, other things. They have used maybe more drugs than the general population, so those norms may not be right for them. Uh, hepatitis, we talked about that, awfully prevalent. CMV, other co-infections, probably more common. Psychiatric disease, our population has many issues in their lives. And so couldn't they all be the cause? And in the charter cohort, we tried to look at that and to decide, well, you know, is that a possible cause? And so we took this population of 1,500 people, very, very carefully studied with careful histories, and we pulled out all the people that had any significant degree of those other comorbidities. And the answer is, those things make a difference. They're bad news for our patients. But if you pull those all out, it still is around 40% of carefully assessed people are impaired. So that's not the answer. We're not going to fix the problem by just writing it off on these other comorbidities. Okay, well, so we think we're doing so well treating the virus. Is the virus well treated for the brain? And there are two ways to look at this. One is to say, well, you know, the brain is a very special organ. Uh, you know, you cut your skin, it heals. You lop off a lobe of liver, it regenerates. What happens when you hurt the brain? 
it scars, and it doesn't heal so well. People that have a stroke, they don't get over it entirely. So maybe this is just old brain damage that we're looking at. And in the charter cohort, we've looked at that, and the way we think about old damage is to say, well, if the virus caused damage, it was worse with low CD4 counts. So is the chance of being impaired related to the lowest CD4 count or the nadir CD4 count that this person has experienced? And indeed, when we cut the analysis of the charter data in that way, it's very clear that advanced disease does result in a greater chance of impairment. So maybe part of it is that we're treating a scar and we're not going to heal that, but it's maybe not going to get worse. It implies that if you were in doubt about treating earlier to avoid low CD4 counts, this is probably another reason not to do it. But it's probably not enough to understand the degree of impairment. It certainly isn't enough. So is there other stuff that's special about the brain that makes it hard to treat? The brain's very special, and it has a different blood-brain barrier. So the drugs we give do not get into the brain as easily as they get into the rest of the body. Scott Latender at San Diego has worked with a way to assess the evidence and the ability of the different antiretrovirals that we use to get into the brain. We call this the CNS penetration effectiveness score, or the CPE score. And it's one way to think about sort of how pharmacologically, how well set up a regimen of drugs is. And if people are on three drugs, then you just add the numbers for each of the three drugs. Um, and the, one of the scary things is that you notice in the lowest effective group is tenofovir, one of our most highly used drugs. Um, and um, uh, there are a few others in that list that are, are low. And in the most effective group are drugs that a lot of them we don't use often at all anymore. How many people have started somebody on Crixivan lately? Uh, not, not too many, I'll bet. So, so we are looking at this, and it does look as if you can get better viral control in some cases by using a higher penetrating effectiveness score. And so maybe treating the virus, getting it really, really undetectable, is going to be very, very critical. And out of the charter data that we published fairly recently, it looks like these two factors, the CD4 count and the detectability of the viral load in the CSF, strongly predicts the group that is more likely and less likely to develop impairment. So on the left side, you see the lowest risk, which is a bit less than 30%, are the people that never had a low CD4 count, less than 200, and in whom we can't find the virus in the CSF. Either a low nadir or detectability of virus puts you up at a much higher percentage. So these are things that we're quite convinced are important, and working toward undetectable viral load in the CSF is probably critical. Um, we're now targeting a special study to decide prospectively if we can improve the impairment by changing regimens for the CPE. And I think it's too early to suggest that this is a, a proper thing to do routinely in your clinics. But in somebody that has symptomatic cognitive impairment, looking at that and figuring out how to either intensify or make better penetrating the regimen you're giving is a rational response at present. 
So we were thinking about doing an LP demonstration here, and we decided that Dr. Sag, who walked in, having heard that I wasn't going to do that, um, we, we'll, we'll skip that, and we'll actually talk about LPs later. But um, in order to work with these patients, you can't be afraid to do lumbar punctures. And, and I think, sadly, patients and providers hate doing LPs and hate to, to even think about it. I'd just like to put up that uh, if you do this with the correct technique, and we'll be glad to talk to you about how to do it, comfortable positioning. I use a massage chair so people are comfortable and non-cutting needles results in a much greater tolerability for LPs and really uh, quite rare post-LP headaches. So we do a lot of these every six months and patients come to our clinic and they keep coming back, cooperating and helping us to learn more about brain disease. So don't be afraid of LPs. So what else is going on? What, what are the factors that may be involved in you know, we, we know that the virus is down and it's less than the 50 copies undetectable level. But when we look harder, there still is virus in the CSF compartment, just like this morning you heard there's almost always still virus in the blood compartment. And so this low-level virus may affect the body by activating macrophages, microglia, driving inflammatory responses. The virus has toxic proteins that are part of it. Uh, composition and can damage very delicate neurons. And so there are a variety of other pathophysiologic things that may be viral related or driven by the response to this virus in the central compartment that we haven't purged and may be ways to deal with cognitive impairment. Unless you think that I've been sitting on my hands for the last 15 years, this is a list that the Cochrane Review cooked up of studies that we've done most uh, around the world, but our uh, group in the ACDG has done a large part of these, um, looking for other ways to block potential biology of the virus in the brain. And sadly, even the latest study, which was a minocycline study of an anti-inflammatory approach, did not give a demonstrable response that we can advocate as a therapeutic approach. So we're still hunting for that. It brings up the issue of inflammation, which if you go to any HIV meeting is a topic that's very central. And, and is there remaining inflammation in the brain that we should be concerned about? And the brain compartment is, of course, very hard to, to assess. And we have to go by what's in the spinal fluid. But this is a small study that does give us reason to believe that inflammation is going on and remains in the brain as well. So looking at spinal fluid of patients controlled perfectly for more than four years with heart therapy, asymptomatic patients, um, if you look at their neopterin, which is an inflammatory marker uh, released from microglial cells in the brain, you'll see that 60% are above what's considered a normal level. And similarly, if you look at the immunoglobulin level, so the response with immunoglobulins to uh, things in the central compartment, the brain compartment, again, an elevated percentage of the patients have uh, high immunoglobulin levels. So we do think that that's playing a part, and it may be driven in part by even this low sub-detectable threshold of virus. And uh, the, ACD, the uh, charter group has looked for these very low viral copy numbers uh, in the CSF, and we do find around 40% of the patients having residual viremia 
that seems to drive uh, an increased risk of, of uh, impairment. So this inflammation may be interacting in a very negative way with other processes that go on all too commonly in all of us as we're aging, or in many of us when we're aging. And so the topic of whether there's an impact on aging and in aging the loss of cognitive function is, is perhaps the most dramatic and common issue that comes up. So, so we are really very, very concerned and trying to put together the appropriate studies to really understand what is this interaction with the aging process, with the degeneration and changes of the brain as we get older, with living with HIV and with its therapy. There's pathologic evidence that you can find some of the signatures of degenerative diseases like Alzheimer's disease. There are amyloid plaques. There are neurofibrillary tangles with tau in them, such as is seen in this slide that would be signature sort of typical things that would be exaggerated in Alzheimer-like degenerative processes. We're seeing these in 40-year-olds where we don't feel like we should see them. So we are quite concerned, while at the same time our findings are not really confirming early Alzheimer's disease, so the markers are not exactly the same. Tau usually goes up in... Uh, in Alzheimer's disease, and it has not done so in our HIV patients, even the cognitively impaired ones so far. But we are concerned, as all of our patients are, about this, and we do think that it's going to deserve a lot of careful study. Another worry, just in case you don't have enough things to worry about, is uh, while we know and we're completely convinced that heart therapy is very much a step forward for our patients, and we wouldn't walk away from it for a minute, Still, these drugs do things we want and things we don't want, and the possibility that they might be part of the problem with the brain has to be entertained. If that's the case, then we need to look for equally effective HIV drugs that would not do that. And the worry comes from a couple of sources. One is an ACDG study from just a few years back when it was um, acceptable and, and important scientifically to try stopping HIV therapy and people doing fairly well. And we all thought that the downside of doing that was going to be that the brain was going to get worse and people were going to have more cognitive impairment. So we nested a neuropsych study in a treatment cessation protocol. And the shocking thing to us and really everybody, I think, was that actually the neurocognitive performance increased and stayed increased for as long as a couple of years after stopping HIV therapy, which gave us pause to say, well, you know, for the brain, is the virus actually less dangerous than the drugs? We don't know. We clearly know that for people's lives it's important to continue their therapy, but we may need to do more focused study on toxicity for the brain to find the very best, the ideal therapy going forward. When you look at just nerve cells growing in a tissue plate, these drugs do have some toxicity and maybe we can sort through new drugs as they come along to, uh, to decide which ones are best. So one last question. In modern samples, what biologic factor has been most closely associated with neurocognitive impairment in HIV patients? Viral load, vascular factors, CD4 counts, viral load.
Okay. Can we have the results? All right. So I've fussed and worried about the virus and fasts and the disease. And lo and behold, um, I've got you sensitized to that. But we have a really kind of surprising new thing. Uh, and that is that it's looking like the tightest association in the current era in a number of series has been with perfusion and sort of cerebrovascular issues rather than with the virus, certainly in the current environment. So the MAX study that all of you know about, the multicenter AIDS cohort, there's been a subset studied for cognitive disease. And the thing that was the closest to uh, a factor for cognitive impairment had to do with the carotid intima thickness, which is a vascular disease factor. Another large study, there was uh, neurologic stuff done on the SMART. And in that, again, blood pressure, cholesterol, prior uh, cardiovascular disease was a stronger predictor for impairment of cognitive function than the traditional HIV disease factors. So concurrent with and maybe uh, playing along with the inflammation theme, uh, we, we really need to start to turn our attention to the brain perfusion as both a, a monitor of uh, something that at least correlates to cognitive performance and may in fact be a factor that uh, can help us to follow the impact of the virus. So. Uh, to put together this perfusion thing and the aging story, uh, I've got this rather complicated slide from my colleague at Washington University, Bo Ansey's work, where he has a, an MR perfusion measure that he's able to do non-invasively in patients. And if you look at the HIV negative line, the red line, you can see that when a person is young, such as me at age 18 over there, has a lot of blood flow to the brain, you're able to think great thoughts and learn very quickly. And as you get over age 60, which is where I'm sitting now, it's pretty apparent that the brain flow has fallen off in a spooky way and it probably is associated with issues of cognitive performance. So that's the way life normally is, happily for me. Um, the issue is that this measure for all HIV patients just being infected with the virus drops people down so that their average viral load or their average perfusion is significantly less. And in fact, there's about a 15 year. So people that are 45 have brain perfusion that's like an HIV negative who's 15 years older. So this is sort of an advanced aging issue in the sense of the brain perfusion. And we're looking at this, and one of the exciting things is that it's worse when people are untreated. When you get treated for HIV, um, you do have an improvement. So our drugs do improve the performance, but not to normal. And so um, we're hoping that this is both going to be a way that we can follow patients and to understand a correlation that will be useful in studying uh, this elusive cognitive impairment. We think it may have in part to do with the loss of the complexity, the way the nerves talk to themselves, this synaptodendritic, the, the nerves talking to each other is very energy intensive and the blood flow is related to that. Uh, as the brain is damaged by aging and by the virus, 
there's a disruption and that probably is where the loss of perfusion is going. But we think this is an area that will really uh, help us to delve into this uh, in a great deal more detail. So let me just end with some obvious things so that we can get on to the really important practical issues of how do we measure this. Um, so I, I do think that if you have any doubts about early treatment, as a neurologist I'm recommending it now, as well as for all the other good reasons, uh, it's really critical to have good plasma viral control. So get a regimen that's on target and works and stick with it. Uh, Attention to cardiovascular health is important, and so it probably helps the brain. So when you're talking to patients, you can sell it for that as well. Um, and then finally, uh, we think that detection and paying attention to cognitive impairment, which is now often asymptomatic, remains critical. It may impact the patient's lives when they don't realize it. So you can help them with finding and considering compensatory practices to protect themselves so that it doesn't impact them negatively. It gives you a chance to think about optimizing the CNS viral control, which may be of benefit. And finally, it gives you a chance to refer them to people that are working on understanding these mechanisms better. And so uh, if you can detect it, then we can work together to enhance the long-term outlook for our patients, uh, which we want to protect uh, all of us do. And so to help you to detect it, we've brought the world's expert, Dr. Victor Valcor, who will uh, uh, lead right on into his talk, uh, helping you with that. <laughs>